everyone. Happy New Year and welcome back to Can You Hear Us? Wishing everyone a great start to 2022, whether you are working, studying, or taking a well-deserved break. For all of you in the midst of the job search, good luck. We're so glad to be back all the way from the Midwestern USA, Mexico, Egypt, and the UK, where we hope to bring you new episodes discussing topics within the sector of international development and being a woman of color. My name is Monica. My pronouns are she, her. My name is Anna, and my pronouns are she, her. We are so excited to start our new season with a brand new team, Activism. In light of the commitments and global discussions marking the COP26 Climate Summit in late 2021, Typhoon Rai in the Philippines and the Colorado wildfires, amongst others, this first episode will focus on environmental activism. As always, the Kenya Heroes team wants to acknowledge that we do not represent all women or friends of color, that we can only speak from our experiences and perspectives, but we strive to include all women and friends of color in our conversations. We are always open to feedback from our listeners. And with that, Monica, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Anna. We're going to start with a brief introduction to the concept of activism, as defined by Julian Schwelder and Kevin Harris. They define activism as a non-institutionalized form of resistance. This resistance is typically political and can be, and I quote, juxtaposed to party politics, social movements, and civil society organizations. While activism comes in many forms, protests and assembly towards a policy or specific group of policies, Schwelder and Harris argue that activism can act like social movements do, and I quote, molding public opinion over decades and bringing about change in policies, services, and political power. Environmental activism or environmentalism is both a movement and an ideology that currently took center stage at the Glasgow COP26 climate summit. In short, environmentalism is a call to recognize the impact of changes to the environment created and facilitated by humans. The results of climate change can impede every aspect of human productivity, from agriculture to industrial systems, creating pollutants that hinder human well-being and natural welfare at a global scale. Since the 1970s, environmental activists have protested multinational corporations and governments for change. As the scientific evidence continues to show the effect of large CO2 emissions on the state of the earth, environmental activism has become critical to shaping public opinion to push responsible actors to be more accountable. Despite the underrepresentation of diverse identities within environmentalism, many important environmental activists are people and women of color, such as 25-year-old Vanessa Nakati from Uganda. Furthermore, Black and Indigenous people are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change due to their intersective marginalized identities. Dr. Beverly Wright, a sociologist and CEO of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, explains this dynamic as they relate to the United States, but her words ring true around the world. Communities of color, and I quote, are in double jeopardy from the climate crisis. First, if you are a person of color, particularly black or Latino, you are more likely to live near toxic facilities like petrochemical companies here in Louisiana producing toxins that shorten and impact the quality of life. And then our communities are often on the front line of impacts from climate change, living in places 
where there could be more floods and higher incidence of different climate-related diseases. For poor communities, there's also not having access to health insurance or medical services. Communities of color are disproportionately affected by all of these things. With this in mind, the Kanye Heroes team wanted to reflect on this debate, especially its role within the realm of international development, community-based solutions, and women-led resistance. Luckily, we have two lovely guests today who can speak about this topic from their own experiences and insights. Our first guest is none other than the LSE's International Development's very own Deepa Patel, the department's communications and events manager. Her background in visual communications led her to work in the nonprofit sector for several years as a communications specialist and allowed her to live and work in the Philippines, Ghana, and Kenya. These experiences developed a curiosity in sustainable development, or more, the lack of it. She came back to London to study a master's in development planning and administration at the Bartlett University College London. It was this theoretical learning experience that led her to focus on sustainable development in her own home city of London. In her non-professional life, Deepa is a London National Park Ranger and campaigns to raise awareness about diversity in the city's green and blue spaces. She has also founded Taste of Tooting Tours, which offers participants an insight into Tooting's rich cultural diversity through an immersive food tour. When she has spare time, she enjoys getting lost in London's parks, foraging and cooking. Our second guest, Kavita Purohi, is an environmental engineer, a barista, a volunteer, an economic researcher, and a keen open water swimmer. Growing up across multiple countries and cultures, Kavita's interest peaked with environmental protection in the face of global warming and development. This resulted in her decision to study environmental engineering. After completing her degree, she worked in the steel industry, mitigating the source of climate impacts. At present, Kavita has just started a new role in research focusing on dominant economics, an economic model centered around people and the planet. She is excited for a new chapter of creating the futures we need to survive and thrive. Deepa, Kavita, welcome to Kenya Heroes. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you for having us. Hello, so excited to be here. I'm just coming to get into this. Thank you so much for being here. We would like to begin with a couple of questions. First, Deepa, you mentioned being a London National Park Ranger. Would you mind telling us a bit more about what the responsibilities of a ranger are and how they generate awareness of environmental issues? Yeah, so I might start off actually by explaining what the London National Park City is or a National Park City. So this was a a grassroots movement where people came together to kind of campaign to make London the first ever National Park City. So it was a group of people who were, you know, already part of organisations or grassroots movements that wanted London to have this identity. We've got so many green spaces in London so many unused green spaces, loads of, you know, green commons and parks. And so we were awarded the status, I think it was three, four years ago. And as part of that, there is the ranger programme. And every year, 50 rangers are recruited 
or we, we step forward to volunteer. And as part of that, we work together. We're all involved in our local community somehow through environmental activism, through running projects, either as educators or facilitators or researchers as, as I am. Oh, I just also support a lot of events as well. So the idea is to have different ranges throughout London and we all work together on different projects. So one project that I've been involved in is the London Fungi Network. So it's just people who are interested in, you know, urban foraging and mushrooms and the importance of having mushrooms within the city. And another project that I'm currently about to get involved in is having a pilot for a a citizens assembly. So there's various projects that happen throughout the city and it's just a way of getting people together to kind of share our knowledge to support each other. And the aim is to make London greener, wilder and healthier. But I also think we can make it more inclusive as well. Thank you so much, Deepa. That's extremely interesting. I'm also sad that I didn't know about this network last year. What an incredible opportunity to learn and participate in urban foraging. We just wanted to ask Kavita, as an environmental and energy engineer, and more specifically having worked in the steel industry, how do you think that corporations can or are currently contributing to successful environmental impact? (laughs) How much time do we got? (laughs) Well, I think it's very clear and very well documented, actually, the impact of industrial activity on the environment. And in terms of the steel industry specifically it's it's so multifaceted because producing steel in itself is such a like a resource heavy activity just from like the sourcing side let alone when you think about the, the, the actual processing and turning it into a product that then meets its end user and it's so I worked at like a fully integrated site in the UK actually it's the largest <laughs> like polluting site in the UK and yeah it's the the impact is significant I think it's also very interesting when when I spoke to a lot of members of the community and who actually had a lot of history tied into, especially working class history tied into like how they would interact with the steelworks at, in, in that area. A lot of the the people from Margam, which is an area of Port, Port Talbot, used to historically live so close to the steelworks because it meant that commuting was really easy. But you talk to some of the people that are young people now and they can tell you stories about their grandparents who used to like go up into the hills and it used to be full of trees and like full of like all kinds of wonderful like natural wildlife and today you look at it and like the tree line is like receded massively and and you can even like pinpoint based just based on like speaking to people from the community like when things started happening uh in correlation not only to the steelworks being active but also like when legislation used to come into place and like regulating the activity that happened at the steelworks because some people will tell you that as kids, they used to go up and run into the hills and then they would just like stop because there's like this big orange cloud of like just pollution. Like, and then like environmental legislation started getting taken a lot more seriously. And slowly and slowly that started, stopped happening. But still the tree line is affected. Still there's a lot of like, there was a lot of acid rain that affected the soil that still exists today. So I think it's really interesting to think about the historical context of the steelworks and corporate responsibility, but also when we think about like what happened, what that looks like today, it's 
different, I think, depending on where you are in the world and the history of that country. Like we live in the UK, I, I live in the UK and the steelworks has existed and has been in operation for a significant period of time. And it has a direct relationship with what that means in terms of the industrial revolution and like generating wealth for this country compared to like where we're extracting some of these materials from. And I don't think that that responsibility is brought into the present as much as it can be. And it's very easy to say, ah, we're, we're meeting our permit regulations or we pay the fines. So what's the problem? But the problem is that it's not proactive enough. And a lot of the time legislation comes in significantly after like these periods of like importance pass us and corporations are really only held to that standard of like what the regulations and what the laws are. So I personally found it quite frustrating, to be honest, being in that space where nothing is proactive and everything is just done to like the baseline of what is required of you and nothing more. Sorry, this is a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. Thank you so much for really getting into the question. It is really insightful for us listeners with no background in the industry to know what you have just said. I did also want to digress for a second and merge both questions. Deepa mentioned the initiative to make London the first national park city um, or have the first national park city status. I was wondering how that initiative would look like at a larger or global scale, for instance, a national park country status and how it could impact corporations or industries to change their actions and accountability towards the environment. And also if, you know, what I've just said is even feasible or if it's completely ridiculous. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting idea because I think this has also inspired other cities to apply for a national park city status. And it is really down to the cities and the people within them to decide what that means. So it's almost like, in a way, it could be a network of different national park cities, towns, you know, villages, maybe even. I think Paul Talbot is, is that a town? Yeah, it's, that- um, it's, I think it's technically like a small city. Okay, right. So, I mean, if Paul Talbot was to be a national park, um, small city, then you'd have a group of people who would come together, you know, maybe people who work, you know, in, in the factories or who work within the industry and people who don't, and then to kind of get them around a table or to get them working on projects together to make things greener um, and healthier. And I think it's it's that kind of bottom-up mobilising that then means that people who are in power who also make the decisions um, then can also step forward. I'm sure there are ways that kind of happens already, but um, it's kind of taking it on more on a holistic kind of level. So I think at the moment there is a couple of cities who have applied for to be a national park city, and one of them is Glasgow. And I think I think Adelaide has has just been awarded that status. So you know it's kind of happening happening slowly, but yeah, it's really up to those cities to then decide what that actually means. I think also it's really great to that concept is really great because it also like takes away this idea of like land ownership which I think is a really personally I think it's a bit of an obtuse idea the fact that we can own a piece of like earth (laughs) when actually we belong to earth 
I think like we're all part of the same ecosystem and we've got to find ways to like like live in harmony with the world as opposed to like terraform and like choose to like just like build loads of things on it so I think yeah if we can have more of that like I'm 100% down for it and I think it's a really interesting concept as well just to see like happening within like highly urbanized areas as well. I guess that's also quite similar to it uses the same model as um as donut economics as well doesn't it it's like very kind of similar kind of from the same place just kind of done in a different way I guess I knew there was a reason that I was like gravitating towards <laughs> and actually that follows up brilliantly because our next question was also to Kavita since she mentioned donut economics in her intro I wanted to ask how would you break down donut economics and its advantages to a general audience or an audience that is new to this specific context right. let's go so donut economics is a is, it's basically an idea it's a theory it's there's a book and it was theorized by someone called Kate Rayworth and basically the idea is that there is both a social foundation that we have that meets everybody's needs perhaps not necessarily wants and like extravagant like luxuries and stuff but definitely everybody's needs that we need to be thriving human beings and that's kind of like what, what I mentioned is the social foundations to think about as like the inner ring of the donut. If you fall below that, if you fall below meeting people's basic needs, then you, you end up in this in what's called the shortfall. And similarly, there's a upper, the outside ring of the donut, which is something called the ecological ceiling. And so basically the idea of donut economics is that in between those two rings, there's something called a safe and just space where everybody's needs, everybody's basic needs are met uh, without overshooting planetary boundaries. And so planetary boundaries would be things like ozone layer depletion, freshwater withdrawals, land conversion, climate change is one of them. And there are, there are many others, but that's kind of the concept. And that if we're overshooting planetary boundaries, we're exacerbating so many problems. And that kind of also ties in back to our basic needs, because then we're, we stop being in that safe and just space and things fall out of balance. And I I personally like to think of the word balance as the really key word here because the the planet is 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 full of abundant like opportunities. We just have to learn how to not overextract and how to live in harmony so that we're feeding reciprocity into how we live as a as a species uh, alongside our our other like furry friends. <laughs> Thank you so much. The last question before we move to our next segment is essentially, Deepa, you mentioned before the importance of looking at things from a holistic perspective or holistic approach. Today, holistic models are being studied and developed by looking beyond the basic parametric needs of food, shelter, clean water, which are all incredibly important, but they want to include psychological welfare, opportunities for work, integration, whether it be at work or social, and study this with the intersection with the basic needs. In relation to donut economics, how could we balance both models and determine what are the core needs for a certain population or in a specific context? Yeah, I think these things are really interesting because as concepts, it's like how you put these things into practice. And I guess, you know, every place will have different needs. So Patolbert will have different needs to London. 
And I think kind of taking these examples, but then having flexibility to use that same concept, but then create a version that works for different places is, is quite important. And I think it opens up to creativity. It opens up then space for more people to kind of come in and engage. So yeah, I think, I think it's kind of, it's good to see that and appreciate that everywhere has its own needs and its own priorities that, you know, people want to kind of like investigate. And then from that, I, I suppose more things pop up. I just wanted to say that I really appreciated that because one of the things that I'm working on is is looking at how and like you said like there are going to be like specific cultural requirements of an area that are not the same anywhere else and that is actually taken into account in the models that we're working on because that is actually a need that we have that is a that is a need that we have to connect with people in in the way that makes sense to us based on who we are and, and where we are and who we come from and 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 beyond like even just as human beings and and like cultural specific specificity and like arts and creativity and dance and like food that's also very much related to like our ecological context as well you're not going to have like the same food in one place that you'll have in another and so how and and that's something that I appreciate about donut economics is it's not necessarily a fixed model it's 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 hyper flexible and you can model it to this the area that you're in because we have all of these complexities as humans. And, and so I apologize that when I said like luxuries, I mean like SUVs, <laughs> like that's not, I don't see that as a need, but arts and creativity is definitely one of those ways that we can manifest all of these things happening in a very real and tangible way as well. Like it becomes real for us, I think. Yeah, also there's, there's one thought that, I mean, from all of this that has kind of got me thinking about this idea of a place as well I suppose you know we are often we have we do have boundaries we've got you know London has the green belt and we've got councils and we have you know boroughs and that kind of has a very defined line of where's where although humans aren't always that simple and we move around and we have you know we live in multiple spaces we go on holiday we travel around and I think sometimes that can also become a little bit more complex, but I'm sure there's another way of coming up with some kind of framework around that as well. But yeah, I think maybe that's like a slight limitation to these things that kind of it does keep us within these kind of man-made concepts of what a boundary is. And I've, I've worked with councils before, and that can sometimes be a bit contentious where one council kind of cares for its people in one way and then another in another way. But then, you know, someone might work in one council and then travel over to another place and work. But then what happens to them? And, and that's also quite an interesting, I think. Thank you so much for indulging me in this digression into natural park statuses and combining models. Anna, back to you. I am just so impressed by how thoughtful your commitment is with environmental issues. Um, I really appreciate, uh, for example, as you said, Dipa, what you said about the importance of the meanings people give to their natural welfare and how crucial that is for, for initiatives and for taking action. I also was wondering about what are your motivations? Like, how did you decide to, to start with this, with, like, to, to tackle these issues, to how did you get interested in this? 
Well, I guess I um I I worked with a lot of food and farming charities, um, and that was because I was interested in. Well, I was just interested in many years ago. I read this article in the in um in the Economist about how protein consumption was changing, you know, from the West to the East and how, you know, the East was eating more meat and what that meant and the growth in GDP and all those kind of stuff. And that just got me thinking about food and how food is linked to economics. Um, and so actually after I finished my, my undergrad in, um, in design, I, I kind of, didn't really want to go and work in a design studio and do that kind of stuff. I was like, I kind of want to do something a bit more interesting. And so I went and I worked with um, the Welfare Trade Organization that was based in Manila at the time. And yeah, and I got to travel around the Philippines and I got to meet loads of farmers. And I think that really woke me up to how actually maybe market forces have these huge effects. You know, our consumerism in one part of the world has an effect on some of the poorest people in the world, but they're often, you know, guardians of the land. And, you know, they they don't get a great deal. And I think that kind of really kind of made me a little bit more engaged in that in that kind of side of stuff. So it was it was a series of doing those kind of things and then working with food and farming charities and just kind of learning a little bit more about about these things. And then also just getting a little bit more involved in London. Um, I am part of a local, it's, it's a group called Transition Town Tooting, which is part of the Transition Town Network. And the aim is for that to kind of move away from fossil fuels through consumerism, through projects, through, you know, kind of growing your own food. So I also volunteer at my, my local community garden. And then I did a bit of research on allotments and, and land in, in London and how people use land to grow food and I think food security is something that I'm quite interested in urban agriculture and urban food systems I love London like for me London is is home and and for me I think the way that I kind of see inequality is through the lens of food (laughs) and so you know I feel like you can't really I think if you if you love food then you also have to really appreciate where it comes from and and so that's kind of been my journey and I get it I guess it gets a little bit more complicated along the way but that's kind of really got me quite engaged with what's happening in London with regards to you know like where are our foods coming from you know nutrients of food you know this whole kind of this very unsustainable system that we're in at the moment where we import so much food and and yeah and it's just very I don't I don't think it's it's a sustainable future for us so whatever I can do in any kind of way to to kind of look at that I think for me that kind of at least I know I can go to sleep at night and I can feel a little bit restful. That's super interesting and I think it links to to the mushroom project that you talked about as well and your Tooting Tours uh, project too. So Moving on to the next uh, subtopic, we would like to talk about the duality of local versus global action, and often international efforts lack coordination and fair representation, but also local initiatives might lack the power and the resources to advance their objectives. 
Having said this, in, a view, in your view, what could be the role of environmentalists to tackle such a challenge? I honestly think that like in terms of activism, there's room for everything. Like there has to be room for everything. So many things that have come from the ground up show us that. I think like across across the planet. And I think there are, there are definitely like real limitations depending on where you are and like what threats might exist uh, get like to, in order for you to be able to even stand up and say something. So there are very real limitations, but at the same time, there is space for every possible like manifestation of, of direct action. And direct action, like you mentioned, I think uh, earlier in the, in the intro, is like it's not necessarily limited to just protest, right? There's so many ways that we can do that. And there are art installations that you can do. There's combining like, a, a, like forming a network of people like this London fungi network where you're actually doing something that maybe doesn't look like activism, but definitely can be. So I, I really honestly think that there's, there's room for everything because it's, it's, it's not our place to like gatekeep what activism even looks like. And uh, kind of referring back to like our previous like our previous blurb everything also is culturally specific so something might work here that might not necessarily work in Spain that might not necessarily work in Mexico and, and vice versa so I don't know if that's too much of like a wishy-washy answer but I honestly think that there's room for all of it yeah I totally agree I think that on on a local level there's so much room for for engaging in these things I feel like everyone can be an agent of change everyone's an environmentalist as long you know we just we do have everyone's got their own limitations of how they can do things or what they can actually give to these these kind of stuff you know but we all have resources available to us how we go about building these networks is also you know quite important um, we all have knowledge you know, and that's something that we can all put towards towards this. And I feel like sometimes actually people just, they they want to do something, but they just don't really know how to go about it. But there's so many community groups. So there's there's people just just doing stuff. And I think if, you, if you've got a group of friends that want to, you know, you all feel passionate about something, get together and like knock your heads together and, and something will come, come from it. But I think... It's this kind of understanding of how things work on a bigger kind of political scale and knowing how then on a grassroots level you can kind of tap into that, you know, whether that's politically, you know, through like local governments or through schools or through education or even just through through consumerism in a way. There's always ways, there's always entry points, I think, to do that. And I think everyone in a way can do that. And we do that as consumers. Every day we do that as consumers. So yeah, we have our own abilities to kind of tap into that and make a change somehow. Yeah, I think also um, you like you mentioned, like just getting a group of your friends together, like even if you don't really know what it is that you're doing, you're gonna find out, but only if you actually try. So and a lot of I think a lot of people also think that activism is like this very like it's a it's done in a specific way, but I think a lot of people just like figure out how they want to change their activism over time and like how an organization or how a group of people might shift the, their perspective or, or change the way that they challenge things over time. So yeah, it, it, it does just start, like Deepa said, just... It's all about conversations, isn't it? How many times do you hear that people had a conversation over a coffee or in a, in a hallway or in the pub? 
you know, and that's where all the great ideas come from. It's like actually connecting with other people and talking and then being like, oh, you feel the same as me? Oh, we've got to do something. And then over time, this idea develops into something and then it's, it's actually practical and it's tangible. And through that, some kind of change happens. And I don't think you need to have like necessarily a framework to follow or you don't need to necessarily have too much of a plan. You know, anything is possible as long as you just kind of have that motivation and the will to do it. I think it has a lot to do with this sense of sharing something, you know, sharing some some place in the first place. Yeah, in the first place, some resources, values. I really like answers to this. I did want to add just before we move on that as a recent graduate in development, sometimes you're almost conditioned to think how can the company, we, society, etc make a difference or change regarding a social issue so it's really nice and reassuring to hear that sometimes what we do day to day is also a form of change and equally as important sometimes it's easy to forget all of that especially in the last week with all of the job applications also like i feel like i just like something that i struggled with when i was doing my lot of job applications was i felt i thought that i had to put my activism aside away from like what professional me was going to be and I think especially like if you do like a really academic subject to study or then you go into like postgrad and stuff I think you end up feeling like you have to end up in like a really formal space where you can't talk like and then you always get told like don't talk of politics or religion and I don't think that's necessarily true you can choose to have a professional and like very formal and like high accomplished super shiny job that also is in line with all of your political beliefs that's in line with like your activism so so don't feel like you have to like put that stuff in a little box and hide it and tuck under a bed in order to perform your best at whatever job you end up doing you're also allowed to choose to work at a place that like aligns with all of the things that you believe in just as much as they're looking for someone that is going to fit the bill like you have to do the same too take the power back (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's so important, isn't it, to to kind of, I mean, like people, people are passionate about stuff, whatever that is. I think as an employee, you kind of want to know that people are passionate about stuff and whether it's politics or cooking or whatever. I think, you know, we all have social profiles and employees do look at them. And, you know, if you're engaged in something and you, you've got an opinion, like share it. And that, yeah, I think maybe people, I think you're right, like people are a bit too scared to be themselves in a way, but actually then you're probably going to end up in a job that you, you're not that happy with, you know, like, yeah, it's nice to have somewhere where your values align with the company. I mean, that doesn't always happen. And I think sometimes actually, if you can find that, you know, you're pretty fortunate, but I think in the space of international development, luckily, I think most of us are able to do something where we where our values do align with our careers absolutely thankfully we can having said that in the intro we did mention how activism notably environmentalism has a tendency to over and underrepresent certain communities unfortunately the underrepresented communities are those that are most vulnerable and directly impacted by climate change and its negative externalities So we did want to ask, how do you think that we could achieve 
and define fair representation? Or how would you personally define it? Well, it's, like, it's quite a deep one, that, isn't it? I'm going to have to think about it a bit. If I'm kind of thinking about it in the sense of, you know, what I do, you know, outside of, of, of LSE, I, I would say it's good to have fair representation in the planning process or planning of anything, whether that's, you know, a project or, you know, I don't know how a green space is going to be used or anything that's kind of got, that's going to affect the local population, I think needs to have a cross section of the population represented in the planning process. So something like a citizen's assembly, which again, you know, is so idealistic. It's, it's one of these things where on paper, it, it, it's, it's great, but then actually when you go about doing it, it's really difficult. And obviously that's because people have different barriers that kind of stop them. Often it's time and it's money or it's caring duties, which means that often women aren't represented, which is really quite sad. But there are ways about going around it. And I'm sure, I think Kavita might have uh, had experience with this, but there are ways that you can kind of tackle that. But I think from the, from the beginning process, there needs to be representation and then to keep people engaged throughout it and then throughout even to the delivery I think it's quite important. Yeah I, I really wholeheartedly agree with what people said but I, I also think it's important to say that capitalism co-ops everything by the way so like representation isn't isn't where it ends like that's where you start and so it's a really great starting point but then you also have to have like the what what are your intentions like you can't just have like one person from every possible checkbox just ticked and then you just like go about your business as usual. Like that doesn't work. That's not going to actually help people because we've seen how greenwashing, how rainbow washing, how like pink washing, all of these things happen. And it doesn't actually help the people that they claim are behind the scenes doing the thing. So yeah, representation is a really good starting point, but then you have to like have the intention of like actually benefiting these people in a way that's very real and like proactive and helps people in the way that they need to be helped as opposed to the way that you think that they might want to be helped. So yeah, I think I think it, it goes beyond just rep- representation. You both had such an eloquent and insightful answer. Thank you so much. This is exactly why we enjoy doing this hobby so much, despite work or uni and life. <laughs> but being able to discuss and see the same question from different points of views and keep learning about it is really what we enjoy the most. Another question we tend to ask in our episodes is why representation is so important within the space or the topic that we are discussing that specific recording, which I think you have both kind of answered along this episode by mentioning how different communities and contexts require different action. Yet I think sometimes this question is hard to answer because there's no definite answer. So if you want to give it a go, please do. Well, if I may, I do think it's really important that we have decent enough representation in the sense that people from certain communities are able to say what a specific community actually needs, but it just needs to be done in a way that's not tokenizing them and not like pigeonholing them in in this tiny part of your identity like I am I am a person of color but that's not all that I am and therefore I'm also like not 
the spokesperson for all people of color. I can only provide whatever insight I can provide. I'll have limitations as much as any other person will. So that's what I mean by like, it's, it, it goes beyond just that. But at the same time, it is important that people from underrepresented and underappreciated communities actually have the chance to voice what it is that they want. And therefore it, it's an important part of solution finding but it, it's not where it ends at all. Like, I think it's the starting point. Representation is a starting point. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like there's so many examples as well recently of, you know, since the Black Lives Matters movement came out, there were loads of companies and organizations being like, oh, we're not doing enough, you know, then kind of calling on the same people over and over and over again to be that voice. And I think it was so exhausting for them because how many times can they repeat the same stuff and then it just not be heard or taken on board? And I think a lot of people lost steam from that. And I think it was really, especially in the environmental movement in the UK, you know, a lot of people were like, okay, well, if you're not going to do anything, but this is, you know, you've got funding to go and, you know, have a, a, a meeting about this. So you've got funding to tackle it, but then really it seems ingenuous or it doesn't seem like, sincere it really actually disheartened a lot of people and a lot of groups so I think there needs to be yeah I, I really don't know what the answer is around that because I feel like we're we're at this beginning step and some people have done it really well but then there's still a lot of people who are still falling short so yeah it's it is a really it's a it's a tricky one I don't I don't really know what the answer is for that I think also um there is also this idea that like we've got to stop putting people on a platform in general that like this person is the person that can say this thing for these other people because it it still is separating them as well and then I I feel like that just like gives you this like lead into like girl boss feminism <laughs> like that's just not what people really need because you can just because like you're the first CEO and call yourself a CEO doesn't mean that you're actually helping the cause of like gender liberation <laughs> like doesn't help they are actually like this it doesn't actually like dismantle the patriarchy and like the very real patriarchal barriers that exist just because you entered like the CEO position so I think also like democratizing it and genuinely democratizing what what resources we have and how we allocate them and like how we then support people that really need it I think is is more the direction that we need to take once we get beyond this like representation issue that's just that's just like my opinion but I think it it gives you like an idea of like what possible next steps there might be once we get on beyond the like round table of like there being all of us. I think those are super insightful responses and I think it relates to this idea of development as something people have to to be involved with and this paradigm where people are agents of their own development based on the aspirations they, they can have, the needs they can have, the dreams uh, even they can have. So I think it's very nice how this also applies to, to environmentalism. After tackling the question of who is and who is not being seen in the sphere of environmentalism, we did want to ask you both, if someone were to ask you what three steps they could do as a young person, a professional, a woman or femme, and or a social media user 
to increase the visibility of underrepresented communities in environmentalism, what would you answer? Well, I would think maybe just live by example, you know, just do like live out your values, be true to yourself and take that risk or just be a bit daring, be a bit bold. I know not everyone can and not everyone wants to. And I, I definitely am not always bold and, and daring. I kind of just like going to the community garden and, and digging. But there are people who I have seen and I've heard and listened to that have really inspired me and then just kind of keep me going or have made me think or have stirred up um, ideas or conversations. And I think that's something that keeps, that needs to keep happening. And I guess we are, you know, it's just so much more online these days. I do think there is a space for online activity. I think there are ways that it can be a little bit more democratic as well so yeah maybe there's potential within that but yeah I just think just keep pushing forward just keep doing things share support but don't do it just for the sake of doing it yeah I think as someone that's kind of like seen the power of like social media and like its context and like political political movements as I lived in Tunisia during the Arab Spring revolution I don't think I can ever really truly cuss out like social media, like activism, because it has a place. But like Deepa said, I think it could definitely be more democratic and significantly less performative sometimes too. But it, it has benefits in the sense that like you actually are able to connect with people anywhere. And I think that's something that I would give as like one of the three things really is that like find people that are talking about things that challenge you or interest you or something like that and like really like a genuinely like just listen to what they have to say before you have something to like speak back with like just listen and I don't just mean that like watch one video and that's it like really take the time to understand the context the nuances and and hear what they have to say and then outside of that as young people I'd say like use that energy because (laughs) Like, I'm like, I'm not even that old. I'm like 27 and like my back hurts. And I'm like, I can't do protests all the time anymore. It's cold. It's raining all the time in the UK. Like, it's just too much effort and I'm just going to get ill. So while you've got that youth, while you've got the fire and like the ability and the time, maximize on it and make sure that like you're on the same page as like your pals. Because there's nothing worse than like (laughs) being friends with someone only to find out later on that they actually just, uh, that they don't care about equality. That, like that's and you're just like how the hell are we friends but yeah like make sure you're on the same page as your pals like use the energy that you've got and then do you know what the third thing is just I think don't give up really because it's it's I think activism is hard I don't really akinning myself to the word activist because sometimes it just feels like a really difficult word to be associated with you've got all types of people that have their perception of what activism is both people that like think activists are annoying and like like there's no place for them but then also people that really occupy the activism world as if it were some sort of profession for them to gain clout and that makes it a really challenging word to align myself with personally but I do think that it's important to be an active member of your society of your community and for that I, f- I think like maybe find ways to not be disheartened by <laughs> just like standing up for what you believe in right and not like give up on because of like invisible barriers maybe. 
Yeah, I think I think one thing that is so important, especially in this in this world where we are online all the time, is we end up in echo chambers and I think it's being aware when we are in them and I do I, I so agree with what you say with you know just challenging your views and listening to what other people have to say because I feel like even within the environmental sector there's there's a lot of different ideas about how things should be done um, and all over the world there's different ideas about how things should be done and I feel like we we almost need to put ourselves in other people's shoes and understand their lived experiences to then also come up with solutions that are actually going to be sustainable and that are actually going to work. And the internet does give us the opportunity to do that. But yes, it also takes away a lot of it. And I think we are, we, we can often get stuck in these, in these kind of, you know, in these echo chambers and we can just constantly agree with each other and not really challenge what we actually truly believe. So I think, yeah, that's that's something to kind of, it has its pros and its cons, but definitely, hopefully more, more pros than it does cons, if we can just kind of bear certain things in mind. Yeah, to tackle the whole echo chamber thing, sometimes I feel like I need to like watch a video like that I almost certainly, I'm like, I, I know I'm going to disagree with everything, but like I need to like change the algorithm here, like get me out of this like feedback loop. I guess that's why... In LSC, it's really interesting because I feel like in the department, it's really interesting because you do have people from different backgrounds and you kind of think you're going to LSC and you're all going to learn international development and that everyone's going to agree. And it's so not true because it's like what happens in the lectures and what happens in the seminars and the conversations that kind of come from that, you actually do hear a lot of opposing opinions and views. And it kind of opens your mind up to all these things. It's like, oh, someone could be the same age as you and, you know, have had similar education, but they're still going to think differently because they have had, you know, a different lived experience. So, yeah, I think I think spaces like that, like really just kind of putting yourself in a really mixed group and then just really kind of, in a way, just people just kind of voicing their opinions and not being shy to voice their opinions and also having a facilitator that can help people voice their opinions as well, I think is really important because that's the only way we can actually learn to accept and be tolerant. And I think actually it seems that we're being less and less tolerant as, as things go on, you know, it just feels like everyone's kind of got their side and they're kind of sticking with it. So tolerance is quite important. Yeah, I've actually found that like also having conversations with people that you might agree on one thing with wholeheartedly, like have a conversation with them about an entirely different topic. And sometimes even that can challenge like your perception of that person and like can increase your tolerance of, of them as well, because suddenly you're like, oh, like I actually didn't think that you would think this, but uh, I still see like the value in you as a human, et cetera, et cetera. But like you said, like we're so polarized, I think now. So even just like, like if you can't, if you don't feel safe enough to like go into an entirely different space, then you can also just have a conversation with someone that you do feel safe around about a topic that you don't know necessarily too much about, or like you're, you're trying to figure out where you stand on or like just something outside of the usual, maybe. And it's okay not to have an opinion. Like it's fine. Oh, that part. Yes. <laughs> <Get it again. laughs> but it's it's absolutely fine. Like, like, you know, and activists don't need to have the answers all the time. 
like people don't have to have the answers and it's fine to change your mind because I also think that sometimes you know on, on these social profiles people will put down you know they're they're so set in the person that they are that they end up living this kind of this person that they they feel they are but then actually they're not being true to themselves and I think you know the world is changing you're meeting different people all the time like our mindsets are going to change as well we're going to hopefully grow or just progress I think it's, a, it's alarming if you don't have that growth and you don't change your mind on certain things right like where, where's your continuous learning yeah absolutely yeah Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's very rude. No, I think that was like a nice way of wrapping it all up. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just thinking about how even if we're all getting older and our backs hurt, <laughs> the one thing we can make sure is not to stop learning continuously and not to shut down opportunities to have your opinions challenged. Especially with the velocity the world is constantly changing at. If we would have told someone 50 years ago what the current state of the world is and all the environmental issues and summits that we have or are not having I don't think they would have believed you and now it's all happening or it's all happened we can't really say or no one really knows what will happen in the next five years let alone 10 years and all of this again just to say that your point on continuous learning is extremely important in my opinion (laughs) I think also, like you mentioned, like we don't even know like what's going to happen next. Like part of your building up your resilience and like willingness to stay in these spaces is also learning how to laugh. Like you've got to find the joy. And part of that is also like finding your community that you you know you can rely on. People that will like take the piss out of you just to keep you in check, that will correct you and that you can do the same thing with too. Like that's all part of it. Like you've got to, as much as like these issues are so like life and death serious, like you've also got to find a way to like laugh about the things that you can laugh about and like find joy in the things that you can find joy in and that's very much part of like this like anti-fragility concept that we're working on at work because like we've got to survive these things and I'm personally not willing to compromise on things like mental health and in order for my mental health to be okay and I know the same for my my people is to be able to like enjoy things (laughs) like So yeah, like laughter is 100% part of the mixture too. I think this has to do with this idea of not being, of of accepting, not being like a perfect environmentalist or or we don't have to be perfect in in our actions um, about caring for the environment in order to, to begin to care for the environment. And I think this idea of thinking that we have to be perfect in order to to take action and for it to be effective is like a huge barrier that we have to overcome in order to do something. I mean, no matter how small that is. Yeah, I mean, like if anyone has a house plant, like they can tell you that if you forget to water it one day or like change its pot or something like that, like it's actually going to be okay. Like it's going to, it's going to forgive you. Like you're going to make that mistake and it's going to be a bit of a mess for a little bit, but nature is resilient. Life will find a way to thrive. So we're allowed to make these mistakes and play with these ideas. And like, as long as we continue to do them, I think as long as you can continue to try and water the plant, like (laughs) it's going to live. Right.
I also think it's really interesting as well, like nature's resilient, but we are nature. We are resilient as well. And so this whole idea of, you know, there's nature and, you know, we're kind of scared what's going to happen with it and it's going to die. That dies, we die. But we are part of that. And we are in this, you know, we are this like, the way the way that we kind of talk about, you know, there's there's us and who are we fighting for? Are we fighting for the human or human race or are we fighting to save nature or the rainforest, whatever? It's like we also have to fight for ourselves as well as nature. But we're fighting for it all in one one whole system. And I think it can be a bit, I guess, people, the language that we use sometimes can get a bit muddled and it can create a almost like I suppose it can be quite unfair on nature and makes it look weak and vulnerable when really it's probably, if anything were going to happen, we'd be off the planet and then nature will survive. Deepa, Kavipa, we have to wrap up. We are so grateful for having you here and for your insightful um, comments on this topic. We would like to congratulate you for your commitment to, to the environmental movement. I think you will continue to do this excellent work you're doing. And finally, we would like to end this episode by inviting our guests to answer a question from the Wheel of Questions, where we indulge our audience with the answers to some random questions. I feel like this is a bit like Russian roulette, but with like yeah. potentially like really devastating like, que like questions. <laughs> So I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm ready. I'm kind of glad to hear that since sometimes it's nice to end on a silly or um, almost ridiculous topic or conversation after talking about heavier themes throughout the episode. So I'm really excited to know what your answers are. So I'm quickly going to share my screen as per usual. And hopefully the question isn't too extreme for us all, especially Kavita. Wow, I'm impressed. It's an actual wheel. Oh, yes. For all of our listeners, Deepa is the person that listens to the quality of our episodes and releases every single episode on the LSE, Apple podcast, Spotify, as well as does all the promotional work for us. So she has heard the wheel of questions so many times, and now she's finally getting to see the wheel. I've actually seen it. It's amazing. <laughs> So today's question is, what is your favorite book? I don't know if it's my favorite book ever, but I'm like loving it. It's what I'm currently reading. It's called The Nutmeg's Curse. Uh, and then like a semicolon, uh, Parables for a Planet in Crisis by Amitabh Ghosh. And it's, it's just phenomenal because as a person of color that's been in like kind of climate spaces since I was like 15, 16, it's been so overwhelmingly white and like only recently is like the topic of like addressing like people of color in the climate movement coming up but this book does such an incredible job of like tackling like the anti-colonial anti-capitalist anti-imperialist histories um in the context of what like climate change really means and I'm not yet like fully through it but I, I just like cannot talk about like this book enough I'm just like I'm just like I just want to like and like take all of the information like in like enclose it in my body because it's just it's so good it's just like such a wealth of knowledge brings it gives me so much context to like why I felt 
the climate movement and like environmental spaces wasn't really great when it was super white for me and so yeah that's the book that I'm reading it's phenomenal highly recommend I haven't read a book in a really long time I'm not gonna lie (laughs) I feel like with work I end up reading so much that I buy books and then I just never get around to reading them but actually the book that I'm kind of reading at the moment and I've tried I've been trying to read for a while is Story of Love and Food which is just kind of kind of talks about the different perspectives that we have on food and food anthropology and how that's kind of um, been a bit skewed over the years it's interesting I'm probably only a chapter in so um, come back to me in maybe like a year's time and I'll tell you how the book is thanks so much again Deepanka Vita for joining us today and sharing your insights on environmental activism we are so happy to have had you on for a season debut And frankly, it scares me to follow up with the next episodes. (laughs) It's been a really great episode speaking to you both. To our listeners at home, thank you so much for joining us, as always. My name is Monica. My name is Anna, and we'll see you next time. Bye. We would like to thank our guests, Kavita and Deepa, again for coming on today, as well as the LSE Department of International Development for all its support, especially the LSE ID Communications and Events Manager, Ms. Deepa Patel, for all her help in promoting and distributing the episodes. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by a sound bank, and our logo is created by Gorkabad. See you all next time. Bye.